he was hoping to connect himself to that. Not only to sell himself. Yeah, it was to sell himself. But to sell himself to him. Mm. To him. To him. To him. Right. See, that's why he could be a Viking. He could be Jack Dempsey. <laughs> he could be Alexander the Great. He could be all of those things. He could be all of them up until the point it came time to be them. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Tourist Information. I am excited to share a conversation I had with somebody I've been trying to have on forever. Teddy Atlas, you know him as a very colorful commentator on ESPN, a trainer of many world champions, and a former trainer of a very young Mike Tyson. Teddy wrote a book that I admired a lot about being the son of Teddy Atlas Sr., who was a doctor in Staten Island, who was renowned for if you didn't have the money to pay for medicine or to see a doctor, let alone having a doctor pay a house call, call Teddy Atlas and he's going to show up and he's going to look after you and you don't have to pay for it if you can't pay for it. And one of the only people that he struggled to be there for was his son. And that was a big burden on Teddy who said, for me, in an incredibly poignant way, I thought the only way I could really connect to my dad is if I was a patient. Teddy turned to crime, which escalated in intensity. He got hit in the back of the head with a tire iron, and when his dad looked at treating him, refused to allow a nurse to use Novocaine, saying, this is the life he wants, he should know how it feels. Um, things got worse. Teddy got stabbed down the side of his face came within millimeters of getting killed. It required 400 stitches, and Teddy was on his way to Rikers Island. When a judge asked for somebody to speak as a character witness on Teddy's behalf, his dad refused, and another man stepped in, who became a surrogate father figure for Teddy, Customato, who called him the little master, and that to the judge, Cus said, I believe that this boy has uh, some real value that he can offer, specifically as a teacher. And that's the path that Teddy went. And I don't know, this was a weird conversation for me because I've tried to reach out to Teddy in the past. He's been very difficult to talk to. And for some reason, this went so easily um, that we just didn't stop for almost three hours. So... Uh, I don't know. We, we went some places that I've always wanted to go with him, and he allowed it to stay on the record. So I hope that is at least in part of as much interest for you as it was for me. Um, so I hope you enjoy this week's guest, Teddy Atlas on Tourist Information. I Every son of a doctor that I know doesn't want anything to do with doctors. And I'm wondering why that is. Because we didn't need them. Because hmm. we, <laughs> we didn't need them. We didn't need them. We didn't go to them. And um, we didn't want to be vulnerable. And um, we had our own doctor. We had our own father. And nobody was better. I'm speaking for the people I know because I'm just guessing and I'm assuming, which you should never do. But I'm assuming they felt the way I feel. That you had the best. You didn't need to go uh, anywhere else. And and plus, when you have a father who's a doctor, you only get the care 
that you really need. There's, you know, it's kind of like going to, I used to say on ESPN, the guys waste so much on a wide hook. You should go to the butcher shop and cut off the fat. Being being a, a, a son of a doctor, they cut off the fat. They, you're, you're getting only what you need when you need it. I remember one time, um, I tried to make believe my stomach was bad. And I was a young kid, you know, really young, very young. And my father put his hands, I'll never forget it. Uh, he put his hands on my stomach. And within like 30 seconds, he said, come on, you're going to school. He was right. I don't know how that was. <laughs> but he, but he, 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 was, he was right. And um, I, I think that you, you gain a different perspective. You, you, you know, you you only you only see when you're sick, and when he says you're sick, <laughs> and I know that sounds, but I'm just speaking for myself, and um, you know, and most of the time, when you have a father like mine, he didn't he didn't want to be sick, you know, he he was going out and doing house calls till he was 80 years old. I never knew what the white thing he was putting under his tongue that I saw him do by an accident, that it was nitroglycerin because his heart was skipping a beat for years. But it didn't stop him from doing his work. He didn't even hesitate. And, um, you know, he, in his 70s, he had invasive surgery. And he was he was right back in the office like two days later. He shouldn't have been, especially at that age. He uh, does, he should have been in the hospital, to be quite frank. But he's a doctor. He called the shots, and you know he could. He knew what you could tolerate, um, you know. And really, what it came down to, it was what you could tolerate, what you were willing to tolerate, because most of it was based around comfort and and you know and pain, and you know. So, ten days in the hospital could really be five days, but the rest of it was for comfort, for pain, for pain management. Well, especially back in those days, they don't keep you as long now. But, you know, so if you if you get rid of the comfort part of it <laughs> and and you erase that, you get down to the nitty-gritty, to what's really necessary. And a, father, a, a son of a doctor learns what's really necessary. Mm. And it's not necessary to go to the doctor that much. <laughs> mm. <laughs> and... Um, you know, and, and listen, there's time, don't get me wrong. Of course, there's times you should. But there's a lot of times that it's not necessary. And, um, you know, you can kind of figure it out. And, and again, when, when you've grown up around a guy that is the guy I just described uh, that has the answers, and uh, even the answers you don't want to hear <laughs> when, you, when you're trying to play an uh, end around, and and I'm um, trying to get away with something. You you, you kind of cut the fat, and you you know you don't um, you you don't look to go to a doctor. Uh, he might turn out to be like my father and say, "Hey, what are you doing here? <laughs> you know, <laughs> you, <laughs> you don't need to be here." But um, I mean, this is a guy that this is a guy that when he he got for thirty years he carried around a hernia, because he was a intern at NYU, uh, really at Elvio, I'm sorry, but he, he graduated NYU Medical School. Uh, mm. He went to 
to graduate school and and then medical school there, and they were very poor. So you can imagine he had to get marks and he had to get help here and there, whatever. But anyway, he went to uh, after he got to NYU, he interned in the greatest place you could intern. He said, which was Bellevue. When you got done there, you you know you're ready for everything. And apparently, when he was an intern, maybe 20 years old, whatever, 21, uh, he he saved the life of a obese person right out in the street. They had a whatever it was. I'm not the easiest thing would be to say they had a heart attack, but I'm not so sure it was a heart attack. But they collapsed in the street, and you're talking about a 400 pound person, whatever. And uh, he he carried the person out, pulled the person out of the street, and um and did a, a track right there, right in the street, opened up the road and did, you know, did whatever a good doctor would have to do in an emergency situation, I guess. And so he never talked about it. We learned these things from other people. And But anyway, he got the hernia from that. So back in those days, hernias were much more complex than they are today. Now you do laser surgery. And it's still not a simple thing, but it's a lot easier than it was, <laughs> a lot different than it was. But he he had no time to stop working. He you know, he didn't have time to take care of it. So he just he just kept going and became a double hernia for thirty years. One day I'm walking into his room and I don't knock. And I should have knocked, but I'm a kid. And um there was a mirror right there. So the mirror was right to the left and he was to the right on the side of the bed. And I open up the door, and I see him through the reflection of the mirror, and he's bent over in pain. I mean, mm. and there's a thing on him, and I'm like, a little, you know, I'm like, what the hell is that? And it was a, it was a thrust. It was a leather thrust. That's what they used if you had a bad hernia. It pushed your, basically, it pushed your intestines in from coming out because they're popping out, and and it it kind of intertwines, and it it's. You know, it's against the adamant. So I see it, and real quick, within a flash, he reacts, where he covers up his pants, and I, it's gone. Just like that, it's gone. And um, he said, you you got to knock. <laughs> I said, yeah, I'm sorry, you know. And, um, and from that moment on, he never talked about it. I never asked. That's the strange thing. I never asked, but I knew. All I knew was my father's in pain every day, and he does what he has to do. He goes to work every day. So finally, I got to understand it a little better when I finally, you know, he I got older and he was he was getting surgery for it. After thirty years, he finally, after thirty years, he finally uh, succumbed, and he he built a hospital. It was doctor's hospital. He had actually had built Sunnyside Hospital. See, the weird thing about my not weird, but the different thing about my father was that he wanted to be a builder. But his mother, the father died young. The mother was a very tough woman, strong woman, obviously a good woman. And she, um, they were from Eastern Europe, and she, they had three sons. She had three sons, and she told the sons what they were going to be. There was no, you know, negotiation. And she said, Eugene, you, you'll be an orthodontist. Um, Reynolds, all professionals. Reynolds, you're going to be an uh, engineer. 
and Theodore, that's that's the oldest son, in a, to a Jewish mother. I, if, if, you know, it's a little special, I guess, from what I've been told. And um, so, Theodore, you're going to be a doctor. And um, and then apparently, this is what patients told me after he died, that, that actually were close to him, that grew up near him. One woman, she actually grew up on the same block as him. She told me about my grandmother. She told me about things about my father, extra things, and said that when when he became a doctor, she told him, you're going to take care of the people who can't take care of themselves. You're going to take care of the poor people. And you're going to make money, don't worry, <laughs> but you're going to take care of them. And you're not going to make money with them, but you're going to. You, this is what you're going to do. And apparently, it, it it had some impact on him. But he went and he built over a hundred house houses homes on Staten Island. He built uh, a few uh, dining halls. Um, he built uh, he sold them, I guess. But and he built um, he built two hospitals. So he built Sunnyside Hospital. And it had like 22 beds, and it lasted like 23 years. And then, uh, and what he did was the reason he built it was, I guess, because you know of what his mother told him to do. Without saying you got to build a hospital, but he built it so people would have hospital care that couldn't afford it, and he would absorb the cost. And of course, the people that afforded it would keep pay the bill. So you know, it was it wasn't it worked, and so he. After three, three years, whatever it was, uh, of running this hospital, where he did major surgery too, he was the GP. But in those days, medicine wasn't specialized, so he did everything. And that's what he said to me. Because when you got out of Bellevue and you graduated anyway, you know Bellevue, the whole thing, you did everything. Yeah, it wasn't like why well, only two throats. No, you do everything. You're a doctor, and so he, the the city decided to build the Verrazano Bridge. And the highway was going to be right where my father's hospital was. So they bought it from him, tore it down, put the highway up. And then he went and found the doctor's hospital with 60 other doctors. But he was the original founder with 60 other doctors. So he he got to do kind of both things. And, um, and you know, it, it kind of kind of worked out uh, for him. But... Uh, it, it was funny because when he was in doctor's hospital, his hospital, and he finally succumbed to getting the surgery, there was these unbelievable stories that came about it, which shows them to be a little eccentric, you know. And as a son, sometimes you think, do I protect that? Do I get? But listen, it, it is what it is, and, and that's part of what it is. And it was because he uh, he he made them roll him down. In the, they were waiting for him in the operating room, and he made them on the, you know, he's on the, the thing, the the gurney, whatever. And as they're rolling to the operating room, he made them stop at all the nurses' stations so he could check on his patients and check their check their um their notes, uh, their their, their records to make sure to, to see if any medicines needed to be changed. And he had a very dry sense of humor, my father. My mother used to call him Milton Burrow, but he had like a very dry sense of You know, he said, just in case I don't make it, I don't want Mrs. Johnson being here for an extra week. <laughs> you know, you know, things like that. And so he, 
he went. He 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 made them spend like another half hour going to the nurses' station, checking the you know checking all these uh, records, making sure medicines were what they needed to be, and um, before he would let them you know finally take them in, and and then of course he got he released himself. He was supposed to be in. I'm making an arbitrary number. Uh, it was supposed to be in there over a week, say eight days, <laughs> back in those days. But let's say a week, eight days. He was out in two days, and he was back. And and listen, he again, the truth is the truth. He had complications years later that he got another surgery. The one I talked about earlier, when he was seventy, where he got invasive surgery again, when he was seventy. But it, it, hey. It, it wasn't the years later, and he did what he wanted to do. He he got out because he had a he, he had a commitment to. And here's the funny thing: to be in a you know obviously to take care of patients, but here's the funny thing about it: it wasn't driven by money. It wasn't because half his patients, like he, if, if they didn't have money, he didn't charge them. He charged five dollars. He gave them free medication. So look, he was making money. Don't get me wrong, but it, the incentive, the push. To, to get out of the hospital that early it wasn't about that. I mean, I, he never said what it was about, and I understood what it was. It was about the commitment of being a doctor. And, mm. you know, you, you, you got patients waiting for you. And it was it was funny because years later when he had to get this other surgery, he waited till my mother went to Daytona Beach because he had a condo. He built a condo down on Daytona Beach. And... <laughs> He he um he was the old story. I mean, it's really quite a story. My mother was pregnant with me, and he took her down to Daytona Beach, and it was you know it was it was it was virgin. And I mean, you're talking so many years ago. I mean, I'm 64 now, and he's he's they're on the beach. My father never took a vacation. So it was kind of strange that he went down there. So he went down, but it wasn't a vacation. They're literally there for a couple hours. They're on the beach, and he says, "I have a, a you know, appointment to meet somebody. Just relax. I'll be back." So he comes back, and he says to her, "And this is my father. It's just eccentric, whatever you want to call." It. He says, "How do you like? How do you like this beach?" And it's all white. It's beautiful. It's pristine. She said, "It's beautiful. Well, you own it." <laughs> and and she was like, "What? You own it? I just bought it. Just just bought it." He saw something. He said it could be something here. They could build something because it was it wasn't built up like it is today, where it became the place for spring breaks and all that stuff. And so he wound up building two uh, condos. Here's where it went bad because he was a great visionary and he knew how to build and he was a great doctor. His greatest strength was diagnostic. Oh my God. He could look at you and knew what was wrong with you. It was amazing. But the thing was, he was a terrible businessman. So he did it without a contract. And these two builders, uh, that were builders, you know, they built it. He wound up with two condos. They wound up making millions of dollars mm. because he didn't, you know, he didn't have a contract. And he, he didn't, I don't know, he, he cared about money, but he cared about other things too that got in the way of caring about money. And so he 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 was different, but he, you know, they uh, he when he got the surgery when he was in his seventies, 
he waited for her to go down there. And I was training fighters in Catskill. I, I was finally on the right path, and I was creating a, you know, a career life for myself, and he was happy. And so I'm up in Catskill, and I call up. Just, you know, I call up just to see how he's doing, and he don't answer the phone. And an uncle answered the phone and said, look, I'm not supposed to tell you that right away. I was kind of strong. I said, well, what the hell's going on? What is it? Well, your father got surgery today. Before he could even finish talking, I was in my car on my way down, two and a half hour drive. I come down. And when I get down there, he's not in the house. He just had surgery, supposedly in the house, but not him. He's in the office. Mm-hmm. I go into the office, there's a whole hallway of people. And they're all the way down to the last room, which got me nervous because I knew what the last room was. It was a room that had a couch in it. It wasn't one of the medical rooms. It wasn't one of the the rooms where, you know, you were getting seen. It was one of the rooms where you were sitting. So there he is. I get past all these people. I shove past a few of them, to be honest. I get to the front. I'm a young kid, you know. I'm, I didn't, I'm a little bit better mannered now. And I get to the end of it, and there he is on the couch, people bending down, showing them their leg, showing them their tonsils, showing them their their arm, and he's on a couch because he can't sit up. He's in such pain. They don't know this. They just know he's on a couch. And he's as white as a sheet. And I'm like, what the hell? This is unbelievable. And these people are there. And there was always lessons, like, Lessons in human nature, lessons to make me a better trainer. You know, like like fighter come to me, oh, my thumb hurts. Thumb hurts? And I remember my father with the trust. I say, okay, let me look at it. Okay, all right, good. All right, get dressed. It's, uh, we're, we're training. <laughs> it's like, please. I mean, like, act like a professional. Without ever, no one ever had to tell me the definition of a professional. No one. I never read Webster's. Said, oh, this is what a professional is. I saw it. So, you know, I'm, I'm in the, there I am, and I see this, and I'm saying, these selfish people. That's what came to me. I was a young kid, 20 years old, 21, training fighters for custom model, and I'm, you know, forming my life, but I'm like, these selfish people, they care so much about what they want to get. And I understand it. Don't get me wrong. But they care so much about what they need that they can't even see that their doctor is sick. They can't see it. They they they, they don't even see it mm. because all they care about is what they want, what they want. And, you know, all those little things. And I remember I, I went and I threw everyone out. And he, he was a little angry because he kind of knew, like, you know, but he didn't know, but he knew what I did. And, um, you know, I told them, you got to get out. You know, I went down the line, left, maybe I left about a few of them, five. And um, anyway, finally got them out of there. And my car, my car was parked up the street. So we came out, it was on Victory Boulevard. I came out and I said, Dad, I'm going to, I could see he couldn't walk. So I said, here, I'm going to just sit here. Was right on the soup. I said, "You sit here. I get the car up there. I'll be right here." I'm coming up, and as I'm coming up, I see he's literally laying on a flagstone. It was like a flagstone 
something and he's laying on it on a platform because the pain must have been so much that he couldn't sit, even though it was only about five minutes. And then he saw the lights of the car. So I slowed down because I knew he didn't want me to see him like that. And as soon as he saw me, he got up, he straightened himself out. I got him in the car, you know, I took him home. And um, it was one of the nicest things ever was when he was in the office and he looked up. And instead of seeing a patient's face, he saw my face. And he said, wow. And only he would say something like this. And this kind of tells you all you need to know about him. He sees my face, he says, wow, what did I do to deserve such a treat? Hmm. What a nice treat. What a nice treat. And I'm thinking to myself, you just got freaking operated on. You're working. And the first thing in your mind is, <laughs> what a nice treat. Like, he, you know, he just was... That's what he was. I mean, that's part of what he was, anyway. Can I ask you something? I, as I was, I, I've known about you for a long time, even though we haven't had a conversation. I, I loved your book. It's one of my favorite books I've ever read from the world of boxing. And your father is Hungarian Jewish, right? That's yes, exactly. Correct. Correct. My mother, my mother is as well. She, oh, well. she's of that same background, but. There's something you said in an interview that I read that rem that you just reminded me of talking about your dad and patients not recognizing that he was sick, which is you said a lot of the trouble you got into as a kid, you recognize now was your attempt to become a patient for your dad because then he would pay attention to you and appreciate you. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, I obviously I wasn't smart enough. I'm not, I don't know that I'm smart enough now, but I wasn't smart enough then to, in any way, intellectualize that or in any way, you know, be able to, you know, understand that. But I did understand a, a little bit later that that's what I was doing. I was I was getting, he's, they're the ones he took care of. They're the ones that got his attention. Uh, they're the ones that he was there for. And um it was always sick people, broken people, fragged people, in need people, hurt people. So I figured I'd go get myself hurt. And um, and I realized when I got older that it definitely was that because when I finally did the big one, I got, you know, got myself screwed up where I got cut in the face. With the scar that I got to carry the rest of my life, um, I, they, you know, the police had me in an ambulance and, and I remember them saying that we might lose them. I always remember that we could, we might lose them, because you know I was bleeding obviously a lot, and plus, it just missed my juggler by like literally by like the tenth of an inch. And um, you know, I remember them saying that, and I remember laughing at them. I know that sounds ridiculous, but in my own way, it was like laughing, like they don't understand, Doctor Atlas. They they have no clue of. How Doctor Atlas will take care of this? <laughs> like, like they they don't know what I know. They obviously don't know Doctor Atlas and that he he's gonna fix this. And then when I when they got me there before they put me out, they rushed me in because they're doing that protocol, you know. <clears throat> so they're obviously, you know, doors are slamming and all that, and they rush him in. And as they're doing that, 
I remember I just very calmly, I just said, listen, you got to get Dr. House. You got to get Dr. House. He'll take care of this. And, you know, they, I always remember how decent they were. Um, as, you know, that bedside manner stuff and all that. But I remember, because you don't, I mean, how, it's not always there. Today, yesterday, any days. But especially in a situation like that, here's these guys, they got to save someone's life. Yet, they were cognizant enough of, of me as a person. I mean, it's pretty amazing. Uh, the sensitivity of, me asking for my father, and instead of just you know ignoring me, I don't know if I'm going to say shut up, but instead of just ignoring me, they they're actually saying, listen, we know he's a great doctor, but we don't have time, and we're going to take care of you. And he, and I'm telling them, no, 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 you got to get him, you got to get him. You don't understand. You got to get him. And they they talked to me. They said, "Listen, we we don't have time to get him, but but don't worry, we're gonna take good care of you. You're gonna be okay." And then next thing I know, I'm gone. <clears throat> but I do remember that. And um, they were amazing. People can be amazing. People suck sometimes, but <laughs> sometimes they, people can be really. They don't suck. And and um, you know. But he uh, he did show up, though, the son of a gun, the son of a gun. Uh, here I am in my, obviously, in the bed with all intravenuses, and I'm all wrapped up and sedated. And I, sh I they even said I shouldn't even been conscious. But yet I, I came conscious like I was waiting for him. And, you know, it's dark. And all of a sudden, I feel this hand. Actually, what I remember is, I remember hearing the, I remember hearing the, what do you call it, get pushed back. The, you know, the the curtain that, that goes around your, your bed. I remember hearing that get pushed back. And, and then all of a sudden, all of a sudden, let me turn this off. That's my fax machine. I'm pretty old-fashioned. I have a fax machine. And um, <laughs> so I I hear pushback, and then all of a sudden, he had big hands. He had big hands, fighter's hands. I'll never forget Jack Newfield, the great writer, um, going to visit him when he was dying to do a story on him. And he looked at his hands. The first thing Jack said to me, he had never met my father. He said, he's got fighter's hands. Hmm. I never thought of it that way. I said, I never thought of that. Never thought of that. Because we all thought, you know, he's a surgeon. <laughs> he's a doctor. But he's it's true. He had fighter's hands. So I feel, I feel his hand. And he's surveying the cut. It's dark. He doesn't have to put the lights on to disturb me. Because he, he, he could feel it. He could see it too, but he could feel it. And um and he's and he feels my hand and I wake up. Maybe I was awake because I was waiting. And um I look up, I look at him and I'm I'm happy. 
And him, he he's just who he is. He says, they did a good job. You're going to have a scar the rest of your life. And then he left. Mm. That was it. But no feelings like, oh, poor me, like a cold father. No, the greatest father in the world. Like, you know, and maybe that's the weird part, whatever you want to call it. But like, no, that's exactly what I would expect. But the most important thing wasn't that. It was he was there. He came. Right. Wasn't it, I've read somewhere, it may have been an interviewer from your book, that you had, I believe it was 400 stitches to close that wound, right? Yeah, 200 inside, 200 outside. Wow. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. That, that your dad actually said, don't give him Novocaine. Because no, he, not for that. Not for that. Not for that. Oh, I'm sorry. No, what that was, no, it's okay, because of course he wasn't there, and he would never do that. I mean, this is surgery. But, <laughs> he doesn't think that makes sense to be hard and mean and whatever. I'm joking. I'm not saying mean, but mm-hmm. uh, what makes sense to be uh, animalistic. And I'm, again, I'm kidding, but not for that. He, um, for, for a life lesson, that's what it was. I was out on the street, you know, doing like, like stupid stuff, looking for his attention. And um, I didn't get to the big one yet, you know, but I was fighting with everybody, I was having a lot of street fights, and I had a street fight. Um, you know, the guys I was fighting, uh, one of them hit me with a tie-eye from, from the side or whatever. So I mm-hmm. cracked my skull in the back. And But I kept fighting, and, uh, you know, I got wobbled, but I kept fighting. I freaking, believe it or not, I, I finished my job. <laughs> And then my friend took me to where? I told him where to take me. I go to my father's office. And so here I am, bleeding like a pig, like a dope. I mean, I literally had a white T-shirt on that day. It's red. I mean, completely red. And, uh, you know, I'm I'm pulsating blood out of my head. And I walk in there like I'm uh, part of a rock band. Like like I'm Mickey Mano, I just got the game winning hit in the ninth. I'm like, what an idiot! But that's where I was. I was probably about 16, and I go, I go in there, and my father was what his office was the busiest office in New York, and he had all the patients because he was a great doctor, but because he took patients for free too. And without med- uh, insurance back in those days, and so he, it was nothing unusual to have a line outside the door up the street, like it was, uh, <laughs> it was a popular restaurant, and oh. you know he was, uh, it was nothing unusual to wait five hours, and so I, uh, I walk right past everyone. And I go right in there, his nurse sees me, she's, oh my God, come on, gets me a towel, brings me right in, nothing shocked my father, because I'm living that way anyway, so maybe that was part of it. He comes out of one of the rooms, right, and he sees me in the hall. He says, have him wait like everybody else. And I didn't, of course, I felt like an idiot. I did. As much as I thought, who the freak I am walking right into, I felt like, how could I be that stupid and embarrass myself that way and be that weak? Because it was about strength and weakness. 
How can I be that weak? Because my father was the strongest man I ever knew. So I now I I go and I sit down. I got a towel to keep the blood. People are moving away from. Me. <laughs> I mean, you know, and um, and he makes me sit, and I sit a few hours. I think I still got a break. I think he gave me a little break. You know, I think uh, I probably waited two hours instead of five. But whatever. I go in, and that's where it happened. I go in, and, you know, she cleans me up. And uh, he he gets the sutures and the needles, and, you know, he saves it. And uh, he gets ready to start, and she's got the she's got the Novocaine needle. And he looks at <laughs> poor woman. He looks at you, so what's that for? She says, it's <laughs> doctor, it's, it's, it's Novocaine. Novocaine. He doesn't want that. Oh, if, if he's and these were his words, and they were so true. If he's going to live this way, he should know what it feels like. Get rid of that Novocaine. Wow, and that was it. And I'm like agreeing again, again. I'm like, yeah, I don't want that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't want that. Why'd you bring that? What is wrong with this woman? It's like what? <laughs> the poor lady, you know. Well, let me ask you about something, because, I mean, when I read your book, this just seemed like such an incredibly pivotal moment for you, like a crucible, which is it sounds like at the peak of the dark path you were headed on, the judge wanted a character witness to speak on your behalf, and your father refuses to show up, and it's Customato who shows up and speaks about your potential and value and what you can contribute to society, how painful was that that your dad didn't come to defend you? You know, um, he defended me enough. Okay. I, you know, I think I'm not trying to protect him right now. I'm really not I'm trying to be honest, and um. I felt like it was now I was in a different place in my life. I was up for a year up with custom model. And um you know, I had won the gold gloves with him. I started boxing while I was up there and all that stuff. And um obviously he kinda of became a little bit of a surrogate father. And, uh, it was. It became that part of my that part of my life. What became Cus's job? He chose to do it. It wasn't really his job, but it became Cus's decision and choice to make a responsibility of his. And because he wanted me to be a fighter, and that was part of making me a fighter. It was. Now is about me becoming a fighter, a professional, because at that time, I, that's what we thought I was going to do. And it, it was about that. Uh, it wasn't any longer about being a son. It, it, not that that was lost, that a kid that's still only, you know, 20 years old, 20, maybe 20 even younger. Actually, I was 19 at the time. But, uh, you know, 
my father, his father was still saying, "Don't take the Novocaine." Do you know what I'm trying to say? He was sure, he, sure. He, he was still, uh, he, and Tough that was love. the Novocaine. Well, that was the Novocaine. Like he's going to come and talk to me. Like I did these things. No one else freaking did them. Yeah, I did them. What he's going to go now and give me Novocaine to avoid jail? I mean, you mm. do those things, you go to jail. I mean, possibly. I mean, that's that's part of it. You, you you go fight on the street, you get hit with a tie iron. Your head gets cracked open. I mean, that, that go, that's what kind of goes with it. And you don't get Novocaine for that. So why should you get caressing and and sponsoring <laughs> and worse for doing something that embarrassed my poor father professionally, personally, which was a damn shame, but I wasn't interested in understanding that at the time. And obviously, what is he going to... He wasn't going to support me getting hit in the head by giving me Novocaine. Well, he wasn't going to support this. That's, he was a black and white guy. My father was the quintessential black and white guy. They talk black and white, and it's, people say, yeah, yeah, but it's either black or white. You know, it's no gray area, and they're full of crap. My father, it's true. Mm -hmm. it, it was. And, Which and, would, with, with your son, what would you do, looking back on what happened with your life after this, how would you deal with it if it was your own son in the same situation you were in? I would have been the diagnostic guy my father was with medicine, and I would mm -hmm. have saw... A need to talk to him earlier, right? I would have, I, I would have seen a need rather than, you know, wait until it was time to just walk in and say, "Hey, it's they did a good job. You're gonna have a scar to your life, but they did a good job. They did tight stitches, two hundred inside, two hundred outside. You know what? They did a good job." Before it got to that, I don't know nothing about that. I don't, I don't. That's not my thing. My thing yeah. would have been. Before we got to that freaking operating table to to talk to my son, so we never get there. Right. I mean, and he, my father didn't have the. I don't know if he didn't have the capacity to do that, but he was a doctor. Yeah, he was a father. And he was Hungarian. <laughs> like I know and he was Hungarian. That, that talks to some of it. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And he had a mother who told him you're going to be a doctor. She didn't tell him you're going to be a father. Mm. She didn't say, hey, Theodore, you're going to be a father. No, Theodore, you're going to be a doctor. Yeah. And that's what he was. He was a father. Don't get me wrong. But as a doctor... Yeah. As a doctor, and and I would have been a father because I didn't have to be a doctor. Wow. And um, and so from all. here, and from here, your life goes this totally different direction. You have a back issue, so you can't continue your career as a boxer. Cuss identifies you as having this brilliant talent and potential to be a trainer. Um, I, I wonder what it was like. Cuss is such a mysterious figure, and yet. Everybody talks about him still. Like he's still 
such a big presence. <clears throat> what was it like for you the first time you met Cuss? Like, where do you stand now on Cuss now that you're about the same age that he was, I guess, when he sort of brought you into his house and everything? I see his strengths and weaknesses. I see the warts, but I... But I'm getting a little better as I got older. I was angry and disappointed in him, and I was self-betrayed by him with mm. the Tyson stuff. And now as I got older, um, like I saw things with my father, I see things with him where I'm grateful for what I got. I'm grateful for what he had the capacity to give me. And I understand what he didn't have the capacity to give me. Yeah, He was in, he was in a race against time. He wanted another champ. And that was everything in the world to him. That was his identity. That was everything. It wasn't about money. It was about recognition. It was about knowing that you were the best in a sport that you gave your whole life to. That you that you had an indelible mark on it. That you that you you're that guy. And he saw, just like my father could see what you were sick with. He was a great diagnostic. Cuss could see what this kid was going to be when no one else could see it. That young. Mm. And he said, you know, this will be my legacy. This is why I live my life the way I lived it. Otherwise, my life was, in some ways, wasted. In some ways, yeah, it was wasted. But it's not wasted if I go down with this one last fighter as the youngest heavyweight champ of all time and maybe the greatest of all time at the time, at least. Um, so, you know, I I forgave him. Who am I to forgive? Well, I'm me. That's who I am. I can only go by how I feel. And I forgave him because I trusted him. We were partners. And um, at the end of the day, I just was a kid who felt betrayed. And then later on, I became a grown-up man, hopefully, that understood, understood what he did, understood what he gave me, understood what he taught me, understood what I learned from his weakness, too, uh, what he didn't have the capacity to do. I learned from that too, but but I I didn't forget what he did, and and I love him for that. And um, so you know, so I I was able to uh, reconcile that, I guess. And um, understand that, and you know that was important. But I, I, you know, I couldn't do that uh, for a long time. Well, and it's interesting to me too when you talk about your dad not taking money from a lot of patients that he helped. My understanding from reading uh, the biography on Floyd Patterson, and I think Tyson told me in an interview, Cuss never took money from any of the fighters that he trained. Is that true to your understanding? No, he took money from Hattison. Cuz had a period of time where he was, he, he had, you know, he was those bowler hats that he used to wear. He had class. He had he had his own little ego. That they weren't for free. Hmm. Um, those suits he wore, they weren't for free. And he he dressed nice. He dressed like a a man of of class and a man of stature. They weren't hmm. free, um, but. Uh, it was a nice thing to for that to be to be thought, you know. The, but of course, he made money. He made because told me things he didn't tell other people because we were supposed to be what we were. 
But from what I understand, uh, you know, you got to remember, Cuz would have had a tax problem, which he did. A lot of people forget about this, or they just didn't research it enough. He had a tax problem with the government where he didn't pay his taxes. So Cuz never could get money. So he had to make sure that you thought he'd make money. And if he got money, it was kind of like the days like today where you get paid off the books, where you circumvent that, where the government doesn't know you're making money. But right. So he, you you don't get in the position where you owe the government uh, X amount of money in tax, a lot of money in tax, unless you made a lot of money. Okay. I mean, that kind of goes hand in hand. So um, you, you kind of, you know, it's not up for speculation. I mean, it obviously made money. So he he made um he he made over a million dollars. He he made he made. I don't want to get into specifics, but he made good money because with with uh, Patterson, whatever uh, between Patterson, whatever else it was. But he he made good money, and uh, but. You know, he was also a guy that didn't necessarily covet money. He didn't actually respect it a lot. I mean, he spent money. He, was, he liked to spend money. Um, but he definitely made money. He he definitely had a situation where he owed taxes to the IRS, where later on he made sure with Jim Jacobs the money went to Camille, the money went here, the one, everything was in, because, he, again, he was in a position where he legally couldn't make money. And I'll tell you a story. This is the story that you laugh when I tell you for people that say he didn't he didn't make money. When he didn't fly. Uh and so he was scared of flying. And he used to tell me, he used to say, Listen, uh flying is for the birds and the angels of which I'm neither. <laughs> That's what he used to tell me. So he uh he used to take a ship out to Europe if Patterson was fighting there or wherever they were fighting, whatever they were doing. He would he would go to Europe on a ship a month ahead of time, as crazy as it sounds, to be there because in those days the ships took a long time, apparently to to get to those destinations. So he would he would you know he would take a, a, a ship, and so he's out there, and he's with I think it was with Patterson. I don't know what fighter would have been, um, but I'm not sure. But anyway, he's out in Europe. I believe it was in London. I'm like 99% sure when he told me the story. And he, the ships went on strike or something. And he couldn't get his ship back. So he was stuck there because he wouldn't fly. So he stuck for like a month. And while he's stuck there a month, he's a big guy for food. And he's in New York. He's a Bronx guy. And he, he's a he's a... You know, food is a big thing to him. And like he would say, he's Italian, he eats food, you know. So he he um, he told me he's there and he's, you know, he's Customato. Everyone knew who he was. He's tipping there better than anyone else. He's he's a big shot in the hotel. He's got the heavyweight champ of the world. And uh, he sees somebody, he sees somebody eating a Frankfurter. And he gets this urge because he used to love to support Frankfurters, Coney Island, whatever they were, and Nathan's, whatever. And I guess it was Nathan's. And he 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 got an urge for a hot dog, so he ran outside, and he got a hot dog, wherever, whatever. 
and he bit into it and he had to spit it out because it wasn't what he wanted it to be from the United States, from New York. <laughs> he spit it out. No good. No, he's got to have a hot dog. So now he puts a bounty out on a hot dog. He tells all the bellboys, all the bellhops, that are all there for Mr. D'Amato. He go, he's, and he's there a month, you got to remember. So they're there. Hey, listen, whoever gets me an American Frankfurter with American relish and American ketchup, uh, I think it was ketchup, a mustard, American mustard, whatever, whoever gets me a hot dog, I'm giving you $500. So obviously he made money. So, so these guys are going crazy. Just think about this, how much money that is for these kids. So they're going crazy. Everyone's trying, and they're coming. He's, you know, he's, a, he's great at telling me these stories. So I don't know how much of it's exact, but it doesn't matter. It's great. So he's telling me he's got Teddy. They were the, from different places, even different hotels started hearing about it. And they would start bringing me hot dogs. <laughs> and they're bringing me hot dogs, and I'm fighting into them and spitting them out, fighting into them spitting them out because they're no good. And then finally someone gets a hot dog that's comparable. Finally, it's comparable to a New York hot dog, and he can't wait. He he's ready, and he bites into it, and it's 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 real. It's good. So now he says, "Oh, oh," and he puts the now he puts the relish, he puts the uh, the mustard, whatever he likes on it. He puts on, he bites into it again. Ah, oh! he's got to spit it out. So it's not the American, it's not the right relative mustard. It's, it's like sugary. <laughs> it's sugary. So I said, so, you know, me and Cuz had a different relationship. I'm the only one who could kind of go up against him. Everyone else just fell out. So he says, so Cuz, what, you give $1,000 for mustard now? <laughs> you know? <laughs> you know? And yeah, he would He would always call me when I did something like that. You know what he would say to me? What are you, a wise guy or a boy scout? That's what he would say to me. You're a wise guy or a boy scout? I don't know. I guess I'm a wise guy, but um, anyway, that's just, so he made money. He made a lot of money at that time, to be honest. And he went through his and he it did become easy that he couldn't make money to make it look like. And I'm not trying to make him. It's always difficult when you respect someone and you you want to tell the truth. Uh, and no ways do I want to do anything disparaging with uh, but the truth is the truth i mean uh, he you know he um he knew he couldn't make money legally, so it was easy to look like he didn't care about money or he or or he didn't take money because he couldn't take money on the books, but that doesn't mean there weren't other ways to get paid and um you know, I think I just I I just thought that he was such good friends. I think he lived with Jimmy Jacobs for ten years. That Jacobs had so much money that maybe that relationship allowed Jacobs him to have some freedom. Yeah. yeah. Well, Jacob looked. What Jacobs did was paid all bills. He paid all the bills up there, but not all of them. I was paying okay. I was paying fifty dollars a week. My father paid it fifty dollars a week. Hey, look, fifty dollars a week. Are you giving me two hundred dollars a month? I mean, but yeah. At that time, it was different. But so I was paying, you know, and other kids that were up there, if they were up there, they were paying rent and and board. So we paid, and Jimmy took care of the bills, the the rest of the bills. Um, and that was and and Bill Kitten too was part of that. 
But it was really Jimmy, but but Bill was partners with Jimmy, so. Well, I, I wanted to ask you, when you, you mentioned feeling betrayed by Cuss, was part of that, only recently I've heard you quoted as saying, if you had stayed with Tyson, that you could have made maybe $30 million from a career as his trainer. And uh, part of my first introduction to boxing was watching documentaries with you and Tyson, I think at the Junior Olympics, and your relationship, like it was, you guys look so close, and you seem like the perfect trainer for him in so many ways. And then Kevin Rooney takes over and sort of off they go. But I wondered, like, is that part of what the betrayal was for you as you thought, I'm getting started as a trainer, and I've got a guy who Customato has recognized as maybe the greatest heavyweight who's ever lived, and I get to be his trainer, and then you have to start over, kind of. Uh, you know what it was? It was just, I was just, you know, I trained all the fighters. There was no one in the gym when I first got up there. It was, a, it was like a ghost town. Mm-hmm. And then and then when I fought, it was still a ghost town. It was always a few of us. That was it. Freddie Sheba used to bring guys over from across the river over past Hudson. <laughs> He'd bring a few kids over to work with us. Um, but there was nobody there. And Cus would come there a couple hours a day, and just during the day, there was no reason to go at night. And then when I got up there and I couldn't fight anymore, and I came back the second time to be a trainer, the young master, because that's Cus couldn't pay me, so he called me the young master. And he meant it. I shouldn't say it that way. He meant it. I mean, he would say, you're the young master, and you're going to be this great trainer, and you have a ability to teach that not everyone has. And so when I started training fighters, and I'm a young kid, and I got all this ambition, all this spunk, and all this energy, I'm in the gym during the day, and Jimmy Jacobs started sending pros that he signed. Benitez was one of them. I trained Benitez for the Palomino fight. I was like 20-something years old. I trained him for the Palomino fight outdoors in Puerto Rico. I mean, I don't talk about it too much, but, you know, um, I mean, I, I trained... Like I don't know how many world champions before I was even twenty two, uh, because Jimmy was sending them to me, and mm. so I would send I would train them during the day, and at night I was developing this this gym where people started hearing about it. Hey, there's a gym open there. They didn't hear about it before because Cuts would be there a couple of hours with his suit on, <laughs> and he was just training Kevin Rooney, me, Kenny Zimmer, a couple of people, and um, and that was it. Now, I'm up there as a trainer, as a young kid, and the word got out, and kids started coming into the gym. Next thing you know, we had 10 kids instead of three. Then we had 15. Then we had 20. Then we had 40. Then we had 50. I had a real gym. I even had to go and get a charter. I had to get a name, Catskill Boxcar. I had to go get a name because I was going to start taking them out to fight, to get experience, to get, you know, to get matches. So we, you know, we, so... I, I developed this gym that wasn't there, and this life. And a part of it was I did it for Cuss. I did it for me. We were partners. He called me his partner. We were partners. That had nothing to do with Tyson. We were partners. I I was proud to be his man. He used to say, we, I'd meet a writer, he goes, this is my man. You don't know how proud that I was. Again, I was 20 years old. How proud that made me. I'm his man. 
I'm his man. And then one time he told Phil Pepe, who at the time was one of the biggest four writers in the country, you know, him, Dick Young, uh, these guys he would talk to regular, and he tells Phil Pepe for his Sunday for his Sunday article in whatever it was, either the Daily News or the Post, um, Teddy Adams is he's going to be a great trader. And I'm a kid, and he I think he's going to be better than me. Yeah, you don't I don't know if he meant it, but it meant it meant everything to me. And so I'm his guy, I'm his man, and I'm training all these fighters, and I'm literally in there seven days a week. Cause didn't believe in taking Sundays off. I'm in there, so I didn't either. So I'm in there seven days a week, training during the day pros, and at night from 5.36 when I opened up the gym to 10 at night till I got done, I'm training amateurs, and I'm developing a team. I'm developing an amateur real team where we're winning trophies, team trophies everywhere we go. And Cuz would come once a maybe once a week, sometimes once every two weeks, and I would have to beg him, beg him, cause come, I want you to come by the gym, please. Only if I get someone to drive me, because if I wait for you, I'll be coming home at midnight, and I, you know, you'll be there with some kid you'll never leave. You know, he said in a positive way, uh, he was making a point, but he said I, uh, only if I get a ride. So he get a ride from Rooney or somebody, because I was training Rooney, I was training Rooney during day, so he get a ride. So I, I would, he'd come and he'd sit down, he'd walk in the gym, and here I am. I got all these kids working out, and they're good, and they're getting good, and they're Golden Glove champions. And I got all these kids, to, and he'd come in and he'd go, look at this. Teddy Atkins is developing real fighters, champions. And, oh, my God. I, I mean, I, I was, I'd be good for another month. Busting my ass all day long, grabbing a cheeseburger in between to keep myself going, go home and eat, and then get right back to the gym. I mean, that was it. Taking kids down to the Bronx to fight every Friday night, to get down to the cellar Saturday night, whatever night it was. It must have been Saturday night. Um, taking them down to to get smokers to the smokers on on uh, down in the South Bronx under the L, where it was dangerous. But I would take them there, get them fights because there wasn't enough action up in Catskill, up in that area. And I would get them fights. I got Tyson his first fight there. I would so that was a huge responsibility to take mm-hmm. them down there. First, I had to figure out. First, it was one car, and then then I've got so many kids. It was another car. I'd have to borrow a van, so I'd have to figure out transportation. Sometimes I'd have to coerce somebody to drive with me, and you know and. And again, I have to match the kids, make sure they match properly, take them down to this, you know, very scary environment in the South Bronx where all the buildings are freaking shot, blown up. Uh, you go in and, you, and the kids are seeing this as I'm taking them there. And then we're walking up three flights of steps. And the first flight you're seeing syringes and needles and stuff. And then you start getting up further and you can hear the bongo music. And, and then you open the door, and there you are, you're in the gym. And then the train goes by and shakes the whole freaking building. The sparks come up and, and goes right by the window, the yell, right by. I mean, this is an environment that, that's making these kids from Casco hard and grown up, make them, you know, make them become fighters. And, and I got to look out for them in this, in this crazy atmosphere. And it's the only positive thing in the neighborhood. I mean, it's a dangerous neighborhood, but that was one positive thing, being in that gym. 
and they charge three dollars to come in, and they sell those little tiny plastic cups of rum and and all the Spanish <laughs> food with the with the potatoes with the meat in the middle and the fried bananas and everything else to to make extra money and you know to pay the rent. I mean, they would gamble on the fights. They would fix the fights. My kids would get robbed sometimes. I would have to figure out a way to make sure they didn't get robbed. I mean, this went on for you know for the years that I that I did this and took on this responsibility. So after all of that and being Cus's guy and the partners, a guy named Tyson comes along and he changes the whole thing. And but but everything's the same with me and Cus. And then all of a sudden he started breaking the rules and letting Tyson get away with things where I would, you know, have to be the bad guy all the time, throw him out of the gym, discipline him, everything else. Cuss would sneak him in. I mean, after all this, and he would sneak him in and train him uh, or have Rooney train him towards the end, you know, and he allowed this division to happen where I became the bad cop, he became the good cop, and and it was terrible. It was terrible. And then... When Tyson did what he did and went after him and did what I did, um, obviously that was the final part. But there was a lot before that. You know, that was the final part. Uh, but there was a lot that led up to, to, you know, to that. And I just felt after all that, you know, a lot of people don't, obviously there's a lot of parts of it you don't know that Don Shanago, who was, who I trained some of his sons and became friendly with because he lived up there. He had a house. He was from Queens. He sent them to my, when after what happened with me and Tyson, he sent them to my apartment where I was living with my wife and my wife was pregnant and uh, with our first child, my daughter. And he sent them to offer me 5% of, for the rest of, you know, of life, 5% of the career of Tyson. If I would just leave, and not make any noise. I told him to shove it up his ass. But, you know, I was just a young, very angry. I was very angry. I was very betrayed. I was very, I keep going back to that word. I was very hurt. How could Cus freaking do this? You know? And, um, sure. You know, you're, you're going to get 5% of your job. And what it was about was, <laughs> Tyson was a ward of the state. And if, if the state found out, you know, because he was still, you know, under under their jurisdiction, it was it was under probation, whatever you want to call it. If they found out instead of just winning national junior titles that he was doing the things he was doing, uh, which he was in school and putting his hands on girls and whatever, doing different things, and if he was doing those things, and then his trainer, <laughs> who there's video of loving each other, if his trainer got to the point where he put a gun to his head, well, we'd have to get him out of there. It would be all over. And it would have been all over. If that ever came out at that time, well, they would have removed him. They would have had a responsibility. They would have had a responsibility. Get him the freak. What are you guys, nuts? Get, he had a gun put to his head. Get him out of there. So, because, you know, because then his concentration was to protect that. And that was the final straw. When I got when I got that knock on the door and Dunshaka's, I talk to you and I go outside and he tells me you give you 5% you know just gotta leave and keep this quiet I was like that was it like how could he do this 
How could he betray me? How is it my man? My man. How could he betray me? So that's where the betrayal came. It had nothing to do with particularly. It came over Tyson, yeah. But it was that's what it was, what I just described. That feeling. That bond. Yeah. I know, I totally understand. I just meant as well that what a start for your career as a trainer. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah my no God. But but see, maybe I get this from my father. The need to be, I don't know if it's pragmatic, it's to be honest, or it's just to be, hopefully you want to be honest. Um, I don't know if it's that or, I don't know, if it's just a need to, like my father without the Novocaine, to just, like, get past the bullshit. And so to get past the bullshit, I can't give myself credit in those areas. And this is what I mean by that, not trying to be a hero or none of that crap. But I understand. I can't give my – because I never would have lasted with him. See, and he never would have been my first world – he was my first world champion the way I taught him how to fight, Yes. Yes, and I taught him for four years very well. He, I did. Yes, and and he used those same the same rudiments, the rudimental things that he was taught. Those are the things that he took later on, the more developed ways and more developed body. But those are the same things that took him to a title. Yes, but I was never going to be there the way Rooney was because I I wouldn't have went along with that behavior. Um, I just wouldn't have. I wasn't. I wasn't cut out. I wasn't wired. Where I, you know, he, I, I wouldn't have been able to allow him because for me it was black and white. It really was black and white, like it was for my father, and a way that it was purported to be by us. But then it became gray. Because said, listen, if they're not disciplined outside the ring, they're not disciplined in the ring. You got to throw them out of the gym. You got to do this. You got to hold them accountable. And then when it came to Tyson, that went out the window. We didn't do that. They didn't do. I did it. I still threw them out of the gym, and that wouldn't have gotten me through a relationship with Tyson. It wouldn't have. It wouldn't have been. And I wouldn't have changed. <laughs> I, and and so it wouldn't have made it possible. It, it wouldn't have made it possible to go through that. You know, there was a lot of things hidden. There was a lot of things they turned their eyes. There was a lot. I mean, he was doing things. And Jim Jacobs and them were paying money to keep it out of the paper. I mean, those are facts. And again, not trying to dispatch or hurt anybody, but hey, sometimes, you know, sometimes it is what it is if you're going to talk about something. And uh, it's part of it. and and, And I mean, Tyson said that even though he was innocent of the Desiree Washington thing, as he, he claimed he was innocent, but... He said, I have done, I believe it was six or seven things that are worse than what I was accused of doing to Desiree Washington. And they covered so, those mean, things up, and those are facts. He was yeah. being honest with that. And and, yeah. and they covered those things up. And I wouldn't have been there for those things. I remember hearing a story. They were walking through a schoolyard, right? The Matt Baranski's dead now, so you obviously can't defend himself. But what the hell? I, I, I know what he said. And... um. And he he was uh, their cop man. So anyway, they they're walking to a school, uh, some kind of schoolyard, and I don't know where they were, what town, but it was during the tour when he was undefeated as a pro on his way up. So maybe he's ten and zero with ten knockouts, eleven and zero, eleven, whatever, seven and zero, seven knockouts. 
and they're and they're they're taking a walk after dinner, whatever. It's twilight, and uh, they're going through. And he says, Tyson looks. You know, he's got all these yes men. I'm sorry. What what else am I going to call him? I don't have time to figure out what I should call. Him. So he's got all these guys around him, and and he he looks out, and he looks at these young girls. They're in the schoolyard, just as it's starting to get dark. And he says, according to Baranski, so I know he said it. He says, man, if I was alone, this was a few years ago, and none of you were around, what I would do to those girls. Whoa. Yeah. And it was it was scary. And according to what Baranski said, it it put shivers in him. Like like almost like like this was really this is a bad guy. And this is serious. And it's like, holy crap. And and here's what I'm saying. Here's why I bring that point up. I wouldn't have been there to hear that, where Kevin Rooney could hear that. And again, I'm not trying to bash Kevin Rooney, but I'm just saying, maybe he's better than me that he could go and make that. I don't know, but I couldn't have. I was too, I cared too much about how I felt. How I felt as a person that I couldn't be there for that. I, I, I mean, that wouldn't have happened with me there. And 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 therefore, Carl said to Mickey Duff, Mickey Duff's one of the greatest boxing guys ever. Me and Mickey were pretty close. And he always wanted me to train exclusively or always fighters, and I would never do it. But anyway, he would bring fighters to me and ask me to help him out. And then when he came from London to New York and he had somebody fighting in Atlantic City when there was a lot of action down there or whatever. So... He told me his story. He was very close with Jim Jacobs, very close. And he told me sorry that Cus had said to him, because he would go up there once in a while, and he brought Frank Bruno up there. And I was there the first time he brought Frank Bruno, by the way. But anyway, he would go up there later after I was gone. And Cus told him, listen, Teddy Atlas was right. And no one had ever told me this uh, to make it. He said, Teddy Atlas was right. He was right. But where he was wrong was if you left it up to Teddy Atlas, we never would have had a great fighter because he would have trained him to be a great fighter, but he wouldn't have stood for these things and he wouldn't have made these compromises and we would have lost him as a fighter. And this guy had to... And he listen, he justified it too. He said, you know, this guy came from a special place and he, he needed to be really understood and under, and Teddy Atlas wouldn't he 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 wasn't going to allow certain things to happen and it would have gotten away of having a great fighter and Mickey said Mickey interpreted it as well number one what he said that you know whatever on some level he he thought I was right but uh, morally whatever you want to freaking call it not that it's not that it's any you know it doesn't do me anything but. Um, you know, it's but he said basically that what he was saying was that if he if if he had been disciplined to try to be a better person, we would have lost as a fighter, uh, and he couldn't take that risk. That right. that's that's purely what Mickey took, and it wasn't hard to figure it out. I took it that way too. But what Mickey took it as is like, if you try, like you were trying to, you were black and white again. You were back to that old thing. Like, hey, a guy comes in his ring, it don't matter if he punches like harder than anyone since Joe Lewis because 
Now it's just like because I'm probably too stupid <laughs> to to understand, hey, maybe it should make a difference. But no, it's still that you you don't follow the rules. You get thrown out of the freaking gym because you you got to learn to be in control of yourself because that was part of it. And you got to learn to be a decent person. That was part of it. And, and if not, you get thrown out of the gym. And Cus was saying that's where Teddy was wrong that it would have gotten in the way. If I stood on Teddy's side, and I know Teddy, you know, he feels the way he feels, which of course I did. If I stood on his side, it would have gotten in the way of a great fighter. And um, mm. and somebody asked me, you know, it was funny. Someone asked me um, one time, hey, Ted, if you did it your way, like, you know, trying to teach him whatever, and can reformed as a person too, or whatever you want, do you think he would have been the same fighter. Very interesting. And I thought, I never had to think about it. And I thought about it, you you know, and I think about it, and I said, I don't know, probably not. And they were like, really? I said, maybe not. Maybe because was right. I said, I want to believe, because, you know, you want to believe that I could have made him a better, per- a decent person, not that I'm a, uh, but, you know, that, that make him within the realm of, a, of what we were trying to do, because we did have a responsibility of being responsible for him. Uh, coming out of jail when we got him and all that stuff. So we were supposed to be rehabilitating him in that way or at least erecting him in that way, and which, which we were. Um, and I want to believe that I could have made him more of a person in that area as well as a great fighter. But I had to admit, when I thought about it, maybe not. Because it probably would have gotten away of me being able to continue to train them. Yeah, you know where well, we we wouldn't have lasted. We we just wouldn't have lasted. So when people say, "Oh, gee, you walked away from thirty million dollars and all that stuff," and you know you got, I don't really look at it quite that way because I don't think I would have been there at the finish line. I, you know, it's funny because when I talked to Mike a few years ago, I've interviewed him a few times, he always says if Cuss had just lived, if Cuss had just lived, but I, I always think it's sort of convenient for Tyson that, that Cuss died before the career really got going because it seemed like he betrayed everybody in his inner circle. Like, he, he was not really faithful to anybody in the long term. Am I wrong in that? Well, gave Tyson, I, I, I kind of leapfrogged that for a second and probably avoided for two seconds. Cuz uh, left him an excuse. It, right. It left, it left an excuse, and in a way, in a way, <laughs> not that Cuz wanted to die, obviously, but in a way, it it cemented that Cuz's legacy would be. A, what it is today and the way we talk about Cus today and the, and the point you brought up, you brought up the point right from the beginning, how people talk about this guy like they don't talk about too many people in anything the way they right. talk about Cus. And that might not have happened if Cus stayed alive. Mm. You know, so it, it kind of, does that make sense? I don't know. You know, it does, Teddy, because I mean, one of the things that's really interesting is I read his book and he mentioned that somebody tried to molest him. And, and he used the word tried. He didn't say they succeeded. He said somebody attempted, which is a weird thing to say, just to mention it in one sentence and then never come back to it. So when I interviewed him, I said, what happened here? Like, you mentioned it. 
And he said, yes, they, they did. They, they pulled, me, pulled me off the street when I was a little kid and everything. And he's so smart that he went at first being really defensive about talking about it, but he immediately recognized this is a new headline for me that's going to go around the world. And the next day, the next morning, he went on a talk show and volunteered the information before I could even write it up for what I was doing. That's him. He's a survivor. He's a chameleon. He's a, he is. And I'm not knocking him. I, I hate to keep defending myself like an idiot. But I'm really not. I'm, I'm pointing out something that I have the ability to point out. Yeah, yeah. That's all. That's all. I'll tell you another thing. This guy was a real good writer. Um, what was his name? Tim Smith. Not Tim Smith. Um, something Smith. He wrote for Sports Illustrated. He was a, he was a years Smith. ago. Gary Smith. There he is. And very talented writer. And, um, and he was writing all this stuff. And listen, it was, it was making good copy. It was making great copy. I read it, and I was like, this never happened. Like, this, <laughs> uh, this is ridiculous. Like, this, but it, it sounds great. Like, he's world champion, and he's going back to Brownsville to mug people, putting masks on, mugging people, uh, doing this, doing that. And he's world champion. He's world champion. And he's going yeah. back, and he's, he's, he's mugging people. He's doing this. and he's playing. I, I'm like... This guy, this he doesn't like. Maybe Smith don't want to understand, or maybe he's just being, maybe he's just being, he's just buying it, or maybe it's because he don't want to think about it too much because it's making great story. Uh, it's a good story. Yeah, yeah, it's a good story. So he's not gonna, he's not gonna be Columbo about it too much. Uh, <laughs> you know, <Yeah. laughs> <But> really, <laughs> and and like, but I'm reading it. I'm reading it. And I'm like, this is absurd. This guy, they, like Smith, either don't want to understand him or you don't understand him or you don't care to understand him. But this is what Tyson does. He does yeah. this. That's part of what he does. He really does. He, he well, creates things. I remember one time he said, he said, how dare they talk to me with their primitive, challenge me with their primitive skills, and they talk this way when they know I will kill them for it. And so the writers are like, oh, my God, this guy's an animal. Oh, my God. And I'm like, hey, dopey, dopey, do you, that's Lex Luthor from Superman. They were like, what? <laughs> what? I said, go look it up. That's Lex Luthor, word for word from Superman. And one of the writers came back to me and said, we looked it up. I looked it up. It's Lex Luthor from Superman. I said, yeah, I'm trying to tell you. Well, you know, it's funny you say that because one of the things – I remember as a teenager when he said that line before the Lennox Lewis fight where a woman, I think a woman reporter said, put him in a straitjacket, and he said, bitch, I'll fuck you till you love me, faggot, yeah. I yeah. think. Yeah. And I asked him, because he mentioned a number of times that all his best lines, he's really quoting somebody else. It's yeah. never him talking. He said, I'm always quoting. Yeah. And I said, where did that line come from? come from because it's so frightening yeah. and it sounds and he and he said that was cuss and that was my mother and i thought i'll fuck you till you love me fag it sounds like a prison thing it sounds like somebody who's been raped and yes. fallen in love with their predator yes right yeah you 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 know i'm not so sure cuss would have been jumped by that connection of uh no, you know, exactly. or, or or God bless her, his mother either. You know that that 
that came from mom and from uh, from the surrogate pop, um, you know. But he he was a convenient guy. He was. I always caught him. I was. I think I was the first to say this. I said he's a chameleon. He adjusts to what he needs to adjust to. He always did. He always did. When he needed to talk like nice, I just use that instead of trying to be. You know, figure it out, like make it. Yeah, when he needed to be nice, and because he was going to be around business people or whatever, what supposedly nice people, and they're not always nice anyway. But in his mind, he had to be accepted by them. He spoke that way. He did. But then, when he was around another crowd, he spoke that way. You know, right. the, the street way, because he wanted to endear them, and he wanted to be one of them, and he wanted their respect, and he wanted to, you know, their adulation and whatever else went along with. So he would do that. And then when he needed to scare somebody, he would do that. I remember one time, he was learning already. He, that's what I mean by innate. He, I had him. You gotta remember, he won more than just junior Olympic titles nationally with me. He won other titles too. So one of the titles before we we could get to the nationals was uh, regional New York, whatever it was, and it was in Queens. And we were we were down in Queens. I'm there with him because you know that's it was me and him. And I'm and I'm down there, and we're getting ready for the fight. I got him gloved. I got him in the uh I got him in the hallway. I took him into the hallway where he could move around. I got him in the hallway and his opponent is up in front of us and he sees it and he looks at him and I'm watching him. I'm a young you gotta remember I'm the young master, you know, I'm making fun of myself. But I'm I'm the young master. <laughs> I'm the young master. Cause said, You're the young master. The young master sees everything. The young master knows everything. So I'm going along with that. I'm saying, I'm the young master. i got to check everything out over here. So I'm watching his, and I'm watching my fighter as the young master, and I'm watching him watch his fighter, the guy he's going to fight. I'm thinking to myself, he's up to something. I'm watching him. He's up to something. What, what does he do? He walks along the hallway. I forget if it was a school or uh, a recreation center. It might have been a rec center. I'm not sure. But anyway, he walks along. And I see him, like, tapping on the wall. And I'm saying to myself, what's he doing here? And he's tapping on the wall. And then all of a sudden, he starts shadow boxing real loud. And it makes his opponent turn around. So his opponent's up in front of us. I don't know how many feet, but maybe 30 feet, maybe 25. He turns around, and he's now looking at him, shadow boxing, you know, real, real hard, fast. And... All of a sudden, in the midst of one of these combinations, he lets one hit the wall, and it goes right through the wall. It was plasterboard, son of a gun. He felt it to make sure it wasn't a concrete wall before he hit it. Mm, he, so he's smart. Oh, my God. And I caught it. That's where I was a little bit of the master. You didn't have to be a master, though, <laughs> you know, to figure it out. <laughs> and, and I was like, son of a gun, look what he just did. He just destroyed this guy. The fight's over. The fight's over. And he did. Yeah. He knocked him out in like what, seconds. But I said, the fight's over. It's over. I looked Jesus. at the fighter and I was like, oh my God, he, he he's shrinking right in front of me. This this poor kid now just saw him punch a hole in the wall. Do, do you think, Teddy, when you say he's a chameleon, I always wondered that 
he wasn't the tough guy originally. No. He was the the lisping. But he was the chameleon. He was the chameleon to survive. He he yeah. told me he told he hid in between walls in vacated buildings in a tough, very tough place that he grew up. No doubt about that. Yeah. He he hid in between the freaking uh, abandoned building walls. So that the drug dealers, the tough guys, these guys that were gonna, you know, that would prey on them, that they wouldn't find them. He hid in between those walls. I once said to somebody, you know, obviously it was way, way back, that I never, a part of him never left those those walls. Mm. That and I and I believe it to this day. That a part of him never left those walls. He's that guy hiding in the wall, and that's why when someone stood up to him, he would fail. And you said, too, that, you know, this is a guy who's not lacking character. He has no character. And I thought that's such a smart thing because here's a guy who has all these tattoos on him, right? Arthur Ashe on one arm, Mao Zedong on the other arm, Che Guevara on his stomach. And it's like, but who the hell are you? He's trying to buy character. He's he's, He's trying to purchase it. Yeah. He's trying to purchase it. He's trying to... He's hoping that if he attaches it to him, it'll stay. Some of and, it is, I mean, and like his haircut is Jack Dempsey and the black trunks and no socks is a reference to somebody else. Like it was all an act, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, no socks. No socks, not black socks. He might have wore black socks. But it was no socks because Jack Dempsey didn't wear socks. The, 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 the butt haircuts on the side, Jack Dempsey. And no, no robe. To just come in there with a towel, Jack Dempsey, uh, Manasseh mm-hmm. Mola, you know, um, because it was he was hoping to connect himself to that, not only to sell himself, yeah, it was to sell himself, but to sell himself to him, mm. to him, to him, to him. Right. See, that's why he could be a Viking. He could be Jack Dempsey. He could be Alexander the Great. He could be all of those things. He could be all of them up until the point it came time to be them. <laughs> interesting. Huh. That's so interesting. Um, I thought it was important to ask you just because there's not a lot of people who were there who can talk about what they saw and everything. Um, in... In your opinion, was Cuff's relationship with all of the kids that he was sort of warehousing in that Victorian house, was it a healthy place? Was it positive? Because one you mean homosexual talk- possibilities? Do you mean that? I, I don't not, not uh, okay, Homosexual is not, is not what I'm talking about, but I just okay, mean cause, cause, because in the Floyd Patterson biography um, by K.P. Stratton, um, Patterson mentions that there was a night where Cuss tried something with him. And he doesn't say it in anger. He just says, we were sharing a bed and something happened that I perceived as sexual. And I just wondered, and again, it can be off the record if you want. In your view, was that a safe environment? Was everything above board there? And I wouldn't hesitate to answer this the way that it should be answered. Okay. Because I get answered to myself. So, and my answer could be one of, it could only be one of two things. I have no comment, or okay. I'm going to answer it. And, okay. and, and, and the only qualification with that, I'm going to answer it and ask you to keep it off the record. 
But okay. I'm not going to do that. Okay. I'm going to answer it, and I'm not going to ask you to keep it off the record. Um, I never saw anything that would make me think it was an unsafe uh, environment. Okay. And I heard everything. I heard that him and Jim Jacobs lived together for 15 years in, in a in a in a one bedroom apartment in a uh, what do you call one bedroom apartments uh, their studio um, yeah studio uh, in Manhattan. I you know I I heard everything, um, you know, and I heard the thing that uh, I, you could look this. I mean, I'm sure as a research uh, as an investigative reporter, you could probably heard this maybe or could find it. I heard the rumors supposedly, supposedly, that Jim Jacobs could have died of AIDS when AIDS was new back then and that the records were kept confidential when somebody asked for them. And I, I don't know none of that. Yeah. I never saw in all those years, seven years were cut, all those years at that house, I never saw anything where Cuss was more than a bit of an authoritarian, um, yeah. which he was supposed to be, um, a great boxing master, uh, a great guy that loved to tell tales sometimes and embellished them maybe a little bit, um, quite frankly, but uh, would tell great stories and was always trying to form the character in a young man uh, as well as his boxing style that's who I ever saw that he committed yeah. to that and and that him and Camille were committed to each other that there was a love story there I don't know if it was sexual but there was definitely a love story there between uh, the two of them but never anything that was unhealthy except that maybe a little brainwashing <laughs> but a little <laughs> friendly brainwashing where it was no, his way in, does that make sense good. his way in no way it, it does. It's just, you know, I've never been able to, there's been all these rumors surrounding it and stuff, and the only thing I've ever heard of a person who was a witness was that Patterson account. Yeah. And so I, I always wanted to ask you about that because you were there. No, never, never was there, was he a strange, eccentric guy? Was he, I mean, he wouldn't let anyone go in his room. I mean, he would literally open the room, the door a little bit at a time in case somebody was passing in the hallway. <laughs> They couldn't see in the room, and I never forget about? this. Why he didn't want to see anything in his room? So, and he was funny in his own way. Uh, the closest person that to, to him was probably in the house before the end, Tyson, of course, was me because I was his guy. I was the young master. I was the guy that was keeping him young, and before Tyson kept him young. But if I'm not there, Tyson don't come there. It's that simple. It's that yeah. simple. If I'm not there training the gym of fighters, Tyson don't come there. So anyway. But that's not me trying to get credit. It's just, I'm just saying it. But at the same time, he was, it was some crazy, funny, wacky stuff. Jose Torres, his former fighter, had sent some fighters up, some fighters from uh, Puerto Rico. And um, some of them were just Spanish fighters, Puerto Rican fighters. I think a couple were from Puerto Rico. And, you know, I got to train them. They come up, and a few of them stayed. They didn't last long. And they stayed, and there was this one guy, Willie. He was wacky. He was wacky. He really was. He was never going to be a fighter. But anyway, he was a big guy. He was a heavyweight. And he was crazy. And he wasn't a bad guy, but he was a guy that pushed the limits. And I think he looked at Carson as, as being 
you know, wacky, and and he was going to push buttons with Cuss a little bit, which you shouldn't do with Cuss, especially in his house. And um, so he was, he was, uh, he was always kind of testing the limits, so pushing the borders. So he one day, <laughs> it was pretty funny. He he's walking by Cuss's room, and I know Cuss. You know, I mean, no one knew better than me. So I, this is this is not anything like that gets my uh, anything new to me so i'm just like oh here we go again he's opened the door you know literally that's what cuss is you know so he's opening the door a little time and willie catches him sees him like basically he he's putting part of the body out the door to keep the door like six inches from beyond not opening more than like six seven inches i mean crazy and he and you know and he's like he he's like he you know he, he's Simming through the door to get out so it don't open. So Willie catches this, and Willie goes, what do you got in there? You know, in the Puerto Rican. <laughs> I can't open laugh because I, I told my wife she was hysterical. She was on the floor. So in his Puerto Rican, what do you got in there? And he goes, guns, and I know how to use them. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. It was the greatest answer of my I ever heard. Cuspy. It was the great with all his with all his great ways of being able to articulate things in such a profound way. He said, "Guns," and I know how to use them. Um, but yeah, so yeah, he that was one of the real peculiar things about uh, Cus was he never let anybody in his room, you know, uh, uh, and see anything in his room. <laughs> so, um, you know, and listen. So, were the peculiar? So, when you ask, is it a healthy? Yeah, that's a fair question. Healthy, yes, in the way that he was trying to form men, and there was a discipline, there was a responsibility, and you were there to be a fighter. And you know, there were rules to the house. Um, yeah. So, I would say, yeah, and a lot healthier than a lot of places where these kids came from, to be quite frank. Um, but was there some peculiarity? Like I just kind of pointed out a few little things to, like that, but nothing, again, nothing to that place that, you, you know, uh, you touched on that might have been touched on by Patterson. Um, and, yeah. and nothing nothing like that at all. Matter of fact, I used to bring girls home, and Cuz never, he, to be honest, you know, it's funny, maybe I'm protected because of my own way right now, I don't know, but I'm just, again, it's, it's if I can only say it if it's there. And I remember, and I was starting to be able to do things I just couldn't because, like, everyone had to wash dishes. After a few years, I didn't have to wash dishes because I was the young master, <laughs> you know. And, and, and But it was more to it than that. Cuz was smart. Cuz was coy. Cuz was manipulative. Cuz was a genius with all those kind of psychological things. But I knew what he was doing. I, I knew he had to give me something because I'm training my backside off, and I was really making something there. I really was. And... And Cus knew it, and so he had to give me something, so I didn't have to do dishes no more. <laughs> you know, and, and and it was a big deal to me. It, it, it really was a big deal to me that I didn't I didn't have to do dishes no more. I mean, I know that sounds ridiculous, but it it really was like, and and so, you know, he Cus would um, it, it was, you know, there were things that uh. You know, he he just he knew how you know he knew he knew how to. Um, I forget what I was saying. There was some point I was going to make 
about um, before I segue into that. Uh, I, I was going to make a point about what he. I'm trying to remember what it was. Did, what did I? We're talking about. We're talking about a healthy environment or an yeah, unhealthy environment. Yeah. Uh, he. He would. Um, I mean, like, you know, people had chores, so that was healthy. You know, you had chores and responsibilities, and you know, things like that. And Cus was very uh, control-minded, where it was weird. Like he wouldn't let anyone answer the phone, but him and he would sit next to the phone in his chair. And he would fall asleep in his chair, and 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 he wouldn't let anyone answer. And if you tried to answer the phone, he'd jump up and chase you, like scare you. And you know, and he would. Um, there were times where he would fall asleep in his chair near the phone, and if you tried to go over by the phone um, and take the phone, or if you went over there and woke him up by uh, accident, he would get up throwing punches at you. So that was crazy, you know. Mm. Um, but again, there was always a reason for it. Like, well, Cuz fought the mob, and Cuz, Cuz went through a period in his life where he had to, he had to be really uh, defensive, and he had to be prepared, and he had to be ready for bad things to happen. You know, um, so there was always an excuse for it. There was always an explanation uh, for that kind of behavior. There was, it fit in, it, it fit in, but. Um, he uh, he. There was something specific, but I, maybe I think maybe I won't think of it. But uh, but generally, you know, he because uh, you know he he knew you know he knew how to uh, he he got the atmosphere he wanted. He he was the king of his domain. You know, he. I mean, the whole thing was that he didn't. You know, he left. He, he he fought the IBC. He fought the mafia. All that stuff. He fought that. But there was always something. If you look, really look a little deeper, there was always something else. Like, and I was the only one who looked. I remember one time we got into an argument, and he he locked the door in the last bedroom on the second floor. They had nine bedrooms, Victorian mansion, on ten acres of land on the Hudson River. And he locked the door with a skeleton key because that's, the doors were that old. And he locked it. And he wouldn't let me out until I agreed with him. And and he was like arguing. And I said, I'm not agreeing with you. You're wrong. I'm not wrong. I said, well, you're wrong. You're wrong. I'm not wrong. And his head started turning red because, you know, he, he had a shaved head. And it started turning. I was like, because your blood pressure is getting high. You should. <laughs> Let me out because I ain't freaking giving in to you, cause I'll sit down here too. I'll sit down right here and freaking, you know. But I'm not saying you're right. And he couldn't believe it. He couldn't believe because Rule would give in everyone, you know, because it was cause. It was cause. Yeah. yeah. But I wasn't gonna say, yeah, you're right. I'm wrong. When I thought I was right. And so he he sat there so mad. His head was turning red. I sat there. So I said, yeah, I don't care. You know, because he locked it with the freaking skeleton key. Finally got up and he unlocked it. You know, we, we left. So those were things that were, whatever you want to call them, you know, but anything anything towards something more, whatever you want to call it, sinister or more obviously uh, improper. Um, no, that's good to hear. Oh, no, I mean, now I remember the point. Sure. So the point was, 
I guess, like I said, I was trying to protect cows, but not not with anything that's not fair to protect them with. And I think this is just fair because those questions were out there. I, I found out about it. I knew that afterwards. They were out there with him. Jim Jacobs says that, whatever. I didn't know about the Patterson thing. But he he would have a disciplined house and, you know, you couldn't, you couldn't bring girls home and all that stuff. And like I said, he he made he made allowances with the young master. I I didn't have to do dishes, and then I could bring girls home. But he would act like he didn't know. So that was the great. And we both knew without ever talking about it. We know I would like he. I always would say that he did this on purpose. You could not walk up those three flights of steps without. I look, the house was you know, it was 90 years old, but you couldn't walk up those steps without a creak at the most inopportune time, just in front of his house door. <laughs> oh, my God. And he come running out. Ah, what are you doing, Atlas? What are you doing? You know, come right yeah. out. So I would figure out how to walk it. But even then, you would get a creak. But I was about the best at it. Like you walk a little on the left, then you walk a little on the right, then you skip a step, you know, and then you pull yourself up by the railing so you don't have to have your feet on any of the steps the last, the last couple of steps, and then you might be home free. You might be home free. So I would come home. I would bring a girl home, uh, quite a few of them, to be honest. And But I kind of knew I, I he had to give me something because I'm doing what I'm doing. And it's normal. It's healthy. Like he would say, it's not healthy if a young man doesn't want to be with a young girl. Yeah, okay. I'm going to test that out now on you. You know? And so I would, no one else could do that. But I could do it. And I swear, sometimes I would take him and I would go down the last bedroom down on the second floor, you know, and I would go down the last bedroom and, you know, we'd, we'd have like a few hours and then I'd come back, take him down, go take him home. And I... I never was that petrified fear that you could have in that house where someone else would have walked those steps. Oh, my God. If Cuss ever came out, could you imagine and catch you with a, oh, my God. But I never had that. You know why? Uh, on a level. And, I, and uh, you know, it turns out, obviously, I knew this, that I knew he would never come out, even if he heard some of those creaks. Because because he was letting me have what he felt he needed me to have for what I was doing for him and for you know for him for us but but you know which was training fighters every day every day no matter what and and so he would let me break rules he would let me I wasn't doing anything bad I was doing something like he would say healthy. I mean, I was a, hmm. I was a young kid. I wasn't married. I wasn't, I, I, you know, and I'm uh, training fighters all freaking day. Yeah, and I, I, I was, I want to meet a girl. So, and he would let, and I remember I would go down to the to that bedroom, and I would, I would, I, I should have been scared to death. I should have been petrified that at any second the door could bust open, which would happen with anyone else. But no, and I'm sure. I mean, I'd have to be stupid, like brain dead, to not believe that of all those, for those years that I did that, my cousin never knew I was doing it. Uh, you know, of course he did uh, on some at some point. You know, of course he did. And um, 
So he would. So it was a healthy uh, atmosphere as far as him treating a young man, letting him be a young man, let him be a boy grown into a. You know. So there was a lot of things that he did the right thing, the way a responsible person running a house full of boys would do. You know, and and at the same time have the discipline and you know with everyone else. And like I said, he didn't allow for me for the for the right reasons. To quite frankly. But um, uh, you know, uh, I, I never, I, I never, like I said, he told me. He said, you know, I never got married. We we would have conversations. He said, you know, Teddy, I never got married because it wouldn't have been fair. And of course, that fit into his character. That fit into me looking at him, you know, in the way he wanted me to, and that fit into his. His overall, his overall legendary persona that that he's married to boxing. And he told me he actually used those words. He said I was married to boxing, and it would have been selfish and unfair to marry a woman knowing that I could not have been a husband. Hmm. And and I believe he wanted to be a priest early on in his life. Yeah, That's, yeah. I've read that. He went through the seminary. He went through yes, yeah. And then he then he told me he never went into it too deep, but just deep enough to tell me that he got he found out that uh, basically that the church wasn't as as um, honest, pure. I'm trying to remember the words he used, but basically uh, that they disappointed him. It was pretty fun. It was pretty pretty interesting. Do you miss him as a person? Do you miss him not yeah, being around to talk to him? I miss that he couldn't see my kids growing up when they were little and I couldn't bring them to Grandpa because I miss no. that. No. <laughs> I have, I miss mm. that. I miss that because he used to tell me, when you have kids, you got to bring them to me because you know that you can't train them yourself because a father can never <laughs> train a, 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 a son. Never. Never. Huh. Because your oh, emotions that. get involved. So you... You you have to bring them to me immediately and give them over to me. That's <laughs> <laughs> sweet. Yeah, it was. it was. Well, last last question. Um, I was watching you in the corner of Kevin Rooney uh, against Arguello. Tough fight. For, yeah, terrible. Terrible for Rooney. Terrible. But I, but I thought it's so interesting because you. You lose your ability to to have your own career as a fighter with your back, and it was the first time I've seen a trainer wear his own name on the back of his of his shirt that you were wearing, like your yeah. trainer's shirt. And I just thought, Is yeah, you know where that came from? Where'd that come from? Cos. Cos. Isn't that huh. interesting? Yeah. Yeah. I don't, that's a mistake either. He's that's um, again manipulative, all that crap. No, but yes, but no. Cus was a Swingali. Cus was a genius. Cus, he really was in his domain, his realm, in his world, and he had to, he had to keep the young master. He had to make the young master. But so he would, he had to give me some. I wasn't making no money. I wasn't, and he would. And I was training. You got to remember, before Rooney, with Rooney, I was, I was training all kinds of pro fighters for Jim Jacobs. I'm talking about world champion fighters. I was training them. And they would come in and out, in and out. And he had to give it. So he said, you're special. You're special. So you have like the old days. And I didn't know none about it. I only knew what Cus told me. 
He said the old trainers would have their name on the back. Some of the old trainers would have their name. And I didn't know this. I didn't know it. I just thought they only had the fighter's name on the back. He goes, no, some, they have to, some of them had their name on the back. So you're going to have your name on the back. So he, so he had it made up from Everlast with my name on the back. Wow, interesting. Huh. And, and you know, I, I felt a little awkward about it at first. Like, why is my name on the back when I'm like with a, but no, you're not, you, you're going to train a lot of fighters. It ain't about it ain't about Kevin Rooney or about Joe Schmo or about it, it, it's about you. You're the young man. <laughs> I keep saying that. I laugh and make myself giggle when I say it. But um, but but really, it was like no, you're customer. Really, you know what it really was. I realized afterwards, like I did with my father. It, it was Customato's name. That was his mm. name because I was his man. Huh. I was you're, you're part of his legacy. I was his guy. I'm part of his legacy. Huh. I'm his guy. That's and that's what it was. Yeah. That's so interesting. Huh. I always wanted to ask you about that because I just thought... Yeah. Oh, it's a good know, question. Yeah. Um, last thing, I guess, two, two little things. Um, one would just be this amazing career you've had as a trainer. You're a Hall of Famer. Um what are you most proud of, and is are there any regrets with all the fighters you've had? What would be the top top favorite moments, and maybe moments that you would you could change at this point? Oh man, there's a couple couple regrets, couple obviously couple regrets, couple big moment for me. I mean, professionally, it's all about I don't. I sacrificed a lot for, you know, I made my family sacrifice a lot. I shouldn't say I did. I did what I did because I did, but my family had no say about it, and I had a say about it. And, you know, so I walked away from a lot of things and because I thought, you know, for whatever I thought was the right reason or principle or whatever, but it still affected my family that there were certain things I couldn't do for him because I walked away from certain things. So it was kind of like the young master, like, cause it was kind of like this. I, I was in a hamburger joint on Main Street, and I had just trained Rooney on a fight on ESPN. And I was the cup man, too. I did everything because Cus said I should do everything. And then when you get more successful, you hire people, you don't have to do anything. So I, uh, I stopped the cut. It was a big cut because Kevin cut a lot. And I did a good job. I stopped the cut. And I think Randy Gordon was the guy, the commentator, whatever. What a great job by this young Teddy Atlas, you know, in the corner. And we won the fight. We won the fight. So anyway, we, me and Cus, we went to get a cheeseburger. Um, it was like a day after the fight. And we went to get a cheeseburger, just me and him. And it was on Main Street. And the owner came in and he watched me. He seen me. And he came over and he said, I want to pick up your... I want to pick up your bill. It's on me. I saw you last night. You you were great. You did a great job. And I'm so-and-so, and I want to meet you, uh, say hello, and I want to pick up your bill. And Cuz did something that was so rude. But it was also, again, Cuz didn't do anything by accident. But it, I, I even thought, I thought to myself, boy, that was, I, that was kind of rude. But he told him, 
Teddy Atlas, he this is he's gonna come back here and buy this place from you one day. Hmm. And I'm like, I can't even afford the cheeseburger. I'm I'm thinking to my I I, I don't think I could. I thought Cus was gonna pick up the bill. <laughs> Maybe he couldn't afford it either. I don't know. But but I'm I'm just two guys sitting there, you know, and I'm and and he says to me and Cus says to him He's going to come back and buy this place. He, he didn't say thank you. He didn't say that's nice of you. He just said this is he's a, going to be the greatest trainer ever, and he's going to come by and he's going to buy this place from you. And I'm like, a part of it felt a little rude and embarrassed, but another part felt freaking good. Like, wow, I'm I'm going to buy this place from him someday. <laughs> I'm gonna yeah. I'm gonna be successful. And, and meanwhile, I was in the corner. And I probably made like from that fight, I I probably made like a hundred bucks. I don't even know if I made a hundred bucks. I, I I don't know what I made, but or, or, or if I even made anything. But um, but the and then so my family kind of became me, where you know it was all about the promise of me someday being able to buy that cheeseburger place. <laughs> and and my family had to go through all these years while I went to places for no money and I turned down fighters for money because of some principle that they had broken or whatever. And all these years they had to go through and the only thing that they that they got out of it was to the promise that some someday he's gonna buy this place. Someday your father's going to buy this place. And then that day finally came where Cuz always said, you're going to train heavyweight champs. That's what you're going to do. That's what you're going to do. You're young. And finally, I had Michael Moore with Holyfield. And and when, when it finally ended, the only thing I could think of, as soon as they said and knew, I, I, I found that certain people in this business, they want to be around people that they think it makes sense to be around for whatever. They're successful, whatever. And the guy who was the CEO of Caesars at that time was sitting, was sitting right, you know, obviously close to the ring, but like right center in the ring. And I'm trying to remember his name. I knew his name for so many years. I never forgot his name. I'm trying to remember what it was. Uh, anyway, and he came over as soon as we won. He was he was there, and he was you could see he was like, you know, kind of waving. And I knew who he was because he had introduced himself to me. And it turned out he sent a bottle of uh, Dom Perignon to my room with me and my wife. But uh, I I see him, and the only thing I could think of I got to use this guy not to get a bottle of Dom Perignon, but I he he is what I need. I need him to get my kids in the ring because now we finally bought this hamburger joint, and they gotta be here. And I went right over to him, and he's like trying to talk to me. And I say, "Excuse me, Mister, you know, can, I, I need my kids in the ring." And he immediately turned to the guard next to him because he had guards next to him, and he said, "Get Teddy Atlas's kids in the ring right now." 
and and they started literally because it was you know it was a little bit of a, a madhouse. They started. They were little, you know. They were young. They they started picking them up and handing them over to each other to get them into the ring. And they got in the ring, and I wrapped myself around them. And before I could say, I wanted to say the first words. They said, "You did it." I said, "No, we did it. We did it." And that was the greatest moment. I mean, there were other things like I remember how good I felt when. I had a kid in the Catskill Boxing Club who couldn't speak. I mean, he, he had a very severe, uh, you know, impediment, speech impediment, very severe. And he had a very severe hair lip. And so you couldn't understand him talking. He came into the gym to get confidence because he used to fail all the subjects. And he'd get picked on, you know, because the way he talked. And he came to the gym, and I worked with him, and I... I understood why he was there. He never told me why, but I knew why he was there. And so I built his confidence, taught him how to fight, and he got he won he wound up winning the winning the regional junior Olympics and tough little kid too. And you know, all of a sudden one his report see I had a rule where the kids had to bring me the report cards. See that's where another thing where it went kind of south with Tyson because you know I was keeping the same rules. I wasn't like, I was just keeping the same rules. I even though he came from a different place. I get all that. But but you still can't be putting your, threatening teachers and putting your hands on people. So anyway, these kids, if they failed two subjects, they get thrown out. They get put out of the gym. So anyway, I look at their report cards. And Gary, when he first came to us, he had been failing everything. But I made an exception. I said, you're going to get a chance to get better. And you, you're going to be here, and, you, and your next report card has to be good. It has to be better. So anyway, he passed all subjects. And it was like 65s, that kind of stuff, 70, whatever. And I saw the report card, and I read it, and it said it had teacher's comment on the bottom that Gary has changed around. He's now participating because he would never participate before because he would, if he put his hand up, he'd get made fun of. So... He's participating in class. He's it's marvelous. He's 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 was so proud of him. And then at the bottom of the comments, P.S. Keep keep him going to the speech classes. They're doing wonders. And he wasn't going to speech classes. He was going to boxing classes. And mm. and at that moment, I I couldn't wait to get home to cuss. Because at that moment, I realized it. I said, Gary, so I started talking to him. And I said, Gary, you did great. This is great. This, uh, what's your favorite subject? I like I'm a man. And I said, oh, my God, he's talking better. <laughs> I, and like, I didn't realize, because I got accustomed to him, too. That was part of it. But I realized he was talking clearer. So I ran home to Cuss. And I said, Cuss. He said, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, young master, <laughs> you know. And I said, cuss, look at this, look at this report card. I said, and then I made him read the comment. And cuss, and only the way cuss could do it. Cuss goes, see what you're doing here, Teddy Atlas, you're changing your perception, medical perceptions, where people say that boxing impairs the speech. You have proven it improves it. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
I was like, I did that? Yeah, I did all that? I, wow, I did all that. Wow, I'm improving speech. And, and, you know, I felt like I was. I felt like I did something. Not that I was improving speech, but I felt like I was doing something. And I felt that was one of my proudest for years that that this kid didn't get picked on no more and that this kid spoke where you could understand him because partly because of the boxing, because of the confidence that he gained. Up until that moment, like I said, when we beat Holyfield for the time and I could now give something to my kids and just say, we did it. We did it. It was all worthwhile. It was all worthwhile. And, of course, I could look up, which I did privately, I could look up to, you know, to the sky and say that, you know, we did it. We did it. Did part of you want to do that for Cuss, too, that, that Cuss was part of that equation for you? You know, here's the funny thing. I, I can't just make something up to make it a better story. I mean, it's like, like I, you can't because it's, it's then you take away the whole purity of it and what it really is. I never, and, and part of me feels guilty saying this. I can't remember thinking of cuss. I could only remember thinking of what I just told you about that. I finally bought the cheeseburger joint, but I didn't. <laughs> but I didn't. I gotta be honest. Like I, part of me wants to say, yeah, yeah, you know, I thought of cuss like that because it, it's what people would like to hear. But I didn't. I thought of my father. I thought of my father. And I thought of my kids, and I didn't think of cuss. But when I thought about cuss was when I was scared years later. I came back out of retirement to train Tim Bradley. We were fighting on HBO against a very tough kid named Brandon Rios. And I changed his whole style in a two-month training camp, his whole style. And I was coming back after being gone. And my kids were on the line. Everybody was there, you know. And I was I was scared. I was scared, like, can can I still be successful and do this and and succeed? I don't want to let, again, I didn't want to let my family down, and I didn't want to let him down, the fighter, because he trusted me. And I was so scared. It was weird. It was, uh, it was the night before the fight, the weigh-in, the night before the weigh-in, the weigh-in the, the day before. And... um. I got on my knees and I said, I always say prayers, but I to my father and everybody, and my mother, and, you know, whatever. And I said a prayer to Cus. And I asked Cus to help me, to be there. Did you feel him there on any level? Yeah. Yeah, you know where I felt him? I was scared about making the weight. My kid was a big kid, man. I did it a new way. He used to kill himself with plastic, run the day of and kill himself, and he was weak. So I did it where I let him eat, I let him do, you know, the right way, but still, and dry out appropriately and do things. And I trusted what I was doing in my knowledge and my experience and everything I did, because I wouldn't have done it if I didn't. But I doubted it, because I'd been away so long. And it got to the night before, you know, we were you know, we're watching everything, everything. And, and I still want him to be strong. Not just make weight, but be strong. So I'm letting him eat some fish. I'm letting him eat raw fish. I'm letting him eat this. Whatever it was. And we're doing it, but 
it got tough, it got tight, but it's supposed to get tight. But I hadn't been in a tight place for a long time, for a long time, and I forgot what it felt like for a second. And um, the last two days, you know, it was coming totally like a few days before, like three days before, it was 150. Uh, it was a 50. Let's see, he had to make 147 on the button title fight. He was like 152, and uh, so it's five pounds. But it was right because I was doing it the right way. I didn't want to kill him. I could have brought it lower, but it would have been a false weight in my world because he wouldn't have been strong. I still had a couple of days of training. It was like three to four days, whatever it was. And then it come down, and then it stuck, and then like it got to 150. And then the night before, I think it was like, I think we went to the gym, and it was like 50 and a half the day before, and uh, then I got it to 50. And so anyway, the night before the weigh-in, I let him, and then I dried him out. But I let him eat some first. And I, I knew all the answers, but I forgot that I knew them because I was scared. That makes sense. You know what I mean? Sure. Like, sure. And so I look, and he's 150, and he trusts me so much, and I can't let him down. And he's, you know, he completely trusts me. So he looks at the scare. He's not scared because Teddy says, don't be scared. But Teddy was scared inside me. So I'm looking at his 150. I'm saying, oh, man, they do everything right to It's supposed to come down. He's, he's supposed to lose. He's supposed to lose three, two and a half pounds while he sleeps because he's he's going to sweat to his paws. And uh, things that a lot of people didn't know in this business. He's going to sweat to his paws. He's going to lose two and a half. I'm going to try him out now. He's going to let me eat. Then he's going to go to the bathroom. He's going to lose half the time going to the bathroom. He's gonna, and I'm doing all the calculations. He's going to go. And, and yeah. So, anyways, 150, I sent him, I sent him to bed. And I'm freaking dying. I'm dying. And uh, and I get on my knees and I pray to cuss. And I pray to make the way and to help me and be with me. I wake up the next morning. I can't. I, I sleep as much as I can. I wake up at 4 in the morning. I go back to sleep. I wake up 5. Finally, I, I, I'm, you know what I mean? You're wrestling with it. I, that's enough. That's enough. Uh, you know? So um, I... I finally get up. It's, I get out of bed at 5.30. I, I call my fighter. I call Timmy. I said, uh, no, 6 o'clock. Maybe it was 5.30. I call Timmy, and he's up. I said, how do you feel? I feel great, coach. I never felt so strong. I said, what do you weigh? He said, I didn't weigh. I'm waiting for you, coach. I said, all right, I'll, I'll be right there. So, um... I, I I throw some clothes on. I go down to his room. He's got the scale. You know, we had it. Obviously, we had the computer scale. We had it calibrated. We 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 weighted with stuff on it. We know that it's exact. And uh, so I get down there, and I'm you know I'm showing him I'm Teddy Allen. I'm not worried about nothing. You know, I'm the young master. I'm not. But inside, I haven't slept. I've been saying prayers to God all night. And and uh, please, cuz let this be okay. He gets on the scale, one forty six and a half. I mm-hmm. said, I'll be right. I said, see, good, see. And Timmy's so happy, he's smiling, he's happy. I I said, uh, come on, go inside for a minute. I I close the bathroom door and I get on my knees on the tiles in the bathroom. I said, thank you, cuz, thank you, thank mm-hmm. you. 
I, I felt that's the answer to your question. At that moment, I felt Cuss was there. I really did. I know it's whatever it is, whatever, but I really felt that Cuss helped me make that way. I know it was the things we did, like, obviously, but I really felt, and I said, thank you, Cuss. Thank you. Hmm. Teddy, this has been so much fun. I really, really appreciate your time and candor. Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. Uh, thank you for making me feel like I was talking, and I don't mean this to, I don't know, sound any way that it shouldn't sound, other than the way that I mean it to sound for me, sincerely, but for feeling like I'm just talking to a, a decent person, a good person, a decent person. That's all. Oh, well, well, thank you. You know, uh, Thomas Hauser is a close friend of mine. Before COVID, we would have lunch every couple weeks for a number of years. He always said to me, you would really, really get along with Teddy Atlas. And I was hoping that we'd have an opportunity to talk sometime. So I hope we have a chance maybe to get lunch with him or something like that down the road. Yeah, that would I would be open to that. Great, great. Well, thank you so much for today, though. This was a treat. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you. All right. Take care, Teddy. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Tourist Information. The producers for this show are George Alarcón Suebi and myself, Bryn Jonathan Butler. Thanks for listening.